We are in a new book of the Bible today. We are starting the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. So take your Bibles and turn to Galatians. All right, Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first five verses, but we're not going to really dig into them until closer to the end because uh, as I like to do when we start a new book, I want to give you the sort of the who, what, when, where, why of the book so that you, we can get a, a context. Because these letters, even though, you know, particularly if all you have is like, like a text Bible, you don't have a study Bible with all the intro, you just read these and you, you really have no idea when it was written, why it was written, really sometimes in some cases to whom it was written. And those are details that actually help to bring out further the truths that are in here, because if you know the context behind why some of these things are written, then it explains some of the language that Paul will use when he uh, writes this letter, why he says things the way he says them, because he is speaking into a particular situation. As always, these letters of Paul, they're not generic letters. They are letters that are very specific to a particular group of people for a particular occasion at a particular time in redemptive history. But anyway, I will read the first five verses and then we'll get into the background and introduction, introductory material for Galatians. So, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So there is the greeting of Paul to the Galatian churches. It's gonna, we're going to make note of that, right? He says to the churches, plural. Because when he's, Galatia is not a city, it is a region. We'll get into that in a moment. But um, there, are, there, there were churches there. He planted many churches in this region. And he's writing, in a sense, to all of them. <laughs> okay, so he is, he is writing this letter to all of those churches. We'll, like I said, we'll talk about that in a moment. So let's just look at some of the background material. Who wrote Galatians? Paul, Okay. <laughs> Now, that seems like a pretty basic question, but I, it, in a sense it's important because in the history of scholarship, um, and not, not that I say that I hold to this view, but in the history of scholarship, you have some of the more critical secular scholars, maybe the ones who don't take the, the Bible seriously or don't believe it to be the Word of God, but maybe believe it to be useful for human flourishing or whatever. There are a group of letters that in the critical scholarship, everyone attributes to Paul. And then there are a group of letters that some say, well, they weren't really written by Paul. They just have Paul's name on it. And you're like, why would they do that? Well, if I'm writing a letter and I want it to be circulated widely, I'm going to say, you know, Carl. And people are like, well, who's Carl? But if I say Donald Trump or if I say Barack Obama and I, I write a letter, people are like, ooh, we're going to read that. It's a letter from you know, the president or whatever. You know, so there's a, there's, a, there's a history in the early church. To, if you wanted your work to be circulated, you wrote it 
what do they call it, synonymously, you know, the, with the word pseudo on, on the front, meaning false, false naming. You would put someone popular's name on it to get circulation because no one's going to read a letter from Joe Blow. But they will read a letter from the Apostle Paul. But Galatians is one of the undisputed letters of, of the Apostle Paul. So faithful evangelical scholars obviously attribute this to Paul. Unbelieving secular scholars also attribute this to Paul. Now if you're like, well, what are the other undisputed letters? Well, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, Philemon, and Galatians. Those are the ones that the vast majority of scholarship attributes says, yes, Paul wrote those. All right, the ones they don't believe that he wrote, well, that would be Ephesians they don't think he wrote, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, and the pastoral epistles. And I could go into reasons why they say that. Typically, it's usually like a linguistic analysis. They'll look and say, well, Paul uses words in these letters that he doesn't use in other letters, therefore, Paul didn't write those letters. Okay, well... If I wrote a scholarly paper to be published in a journal, I'm going to use words that I would not put in a letter that I would write to one of you all. Okay, does that mean I didn't write both letters? No, it doesn't mean that. So it's kind of a silly argument, but anyway, to just kind of put a cap on it, Paul wrote this. This is an undisputed letter that Paul wrote. Now the recipients, as I mentioned, it is not to a church, it is not to an individual, it is to the churches, plural, of Galatia. And we'll look at the idea of what Galatia is. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, uh, you, you might have some maps there that will tell you the, the Roman regions there. Particularly if you've got one that has like the, journey, you know, the missionary journeys of Paul on there, you might see... It's usually going to be a map of Greece and, and Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Well, Galatia would be sort of like right in the middle there of that Asia Minor Peninsula. All right, so it's like in the middle section there, uh, north of where Jerusalem is and a little bit west. So northwest of Jerusalem in that middle region there of the Asia Minor Peninsula. And it's a group of churches. It's a group of churches. These are churches that Paul... Uh, established during his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. We'll look at that in a moment. The date. So the date of writing is dependent on which group of Galatians you believe Paul is writing to. So there are two theories. Because the, the name Galatia is the name of an ethnic group, and it's also the name of a sort of a Roman political province. So is, is Paul writing to the ethnic Galatians, or is he writing to the sort of people in the Roman political region of Galatia? So the ethnic Galatians would be up in the northern part of Galatia. That would be the North Galatian theory. And if Paul is writing to those Galatians up in the north, it is believed he wrote this letter later, sometime in the dates somewhere between 53 to 57 A.D., probably during or after his second missionary journey. Now, the problem with that theory is we have no at least biblical evidence that Paul established any churches in the northern Galatia region. He goes through there 
on his way to Macedonia, as he, he starts his second missionary journey in Acts 16, if you recall, he goes back through those churches he started in his first missionary journey and then comes up to a point, and he wants to go in a certain direction, but then the Holy Spirit prevents him from going there. The Holy Spirit prevents him from going in another direction, and then he gets a dream to go to Macedonia. So he, on his way to Macedonia, you know, they argue, well, he passed through that northern Galatia region. Perhaps he established some churches there. We don't know that because Acts doesn't tell us that he did. That's the northern Galatian region. Now, that was a, a, a dominant view for much of the history of the church because, again, it's, it's attached to that ethnic identity of the Galatians. They would be people from the region of Gaul, which would be modern-day France, so they're Celtic in background, and they would have expanded all throughout that region. But there is a view that is now more popular. It's called the South View. And it, this is the one that seems more plausible. The South View is that Paul wrote to those churches that he established during his first missionary journey. So he goes through the region of southern Galatia in Acts 13 and 14, and he establishes churches in Antioch of Pisidia, he establishes a church in Iconium, he establishes a church in Lystra, and he establishes a church in Derbe. Those are, and we have records of that in the book of Acts. And those would all be in that southern region. And if that's the case then the theory goes that the writing of Galatians would be either somewhere be between the year 48 and 53 AD, much earlier. Now, as I said, I think that view seems more plausible because we actually have evidence of churches that Paul established in that region that would be that Roman province, that political province of southern Galatia. Now, the date, like I said, there's a range, 48 to 53. How do you determine that date? Well, how you determine that date is dependent on a couple of things. The first thing it's dependent on is, if you remember, what happens in Acts chapter 15? You guys remember that chapter? Well, Fred's going to look it up. <laughs> there's a very important thing that happened in Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem Council, yeah, okay. So if you remember what happened with the Jerusalem Council, this was motivated by some people that came from Jerusalem, supposedly sent by James the Apostle to go into Antioch, not Antioch in Pisidia, but Antioch where Paul had sort of established his base of operations. That would be in Syria, so north of, of, of Israel, Palestine. So these... Jewish Christians came into Antioch and were sort of disturbing the brethren there, saying that you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. In order to be a Christian, you had to become Jewish first. You, and if you didn't do that, then you're skipping steps, and you have to go back, and you have to uh, be circumcised and all that stuff. And Paul's like, no way. No way, Jose. And there was a big uh, hullabaloo. That's an official word, okay? <laughs> Has a very technical definition, hullabaloo. It's a, it's a little worse than a kerfuffle, and, but not as bad as a full-blown, you know, just war, okay? So a hullabaloo. And then Paul, with his group of people, Barnabas and so on and so forth, they go to Jerusalem. 
And they, they confront the Jewish apostles there, James, Peter, and John. And they say, hey, look, you know, what's going on here? So they have this council. And the result of the council is that, no, Christians do not, Gentile Christians do not have to be circumcised in order to be Christians. In other words, there's, there's no need for circumcision. Now, Galatians is going to talk a lot about that. And the, the theory goes, if Galatians was written after the Jerusalem council, then you would say, well, why wouldn't Paul just reference the letter that the apostles in Jerusalem wrote? They wrote a letter that was to be distributed to all the churches that says, Gentile Christians do not need to be circumcised. Now, they, you know, scholars will say, well, this is an argument from silence. But as they would say, this is a deafening silence because this would be the trump card, right? If you've got people in the Galatian churches coming in and saying you need to be circumcised, Paul can be just say, James, Peter, John, and the whole Jerusalem church said you do not. So go away. <laughs> All right, so the fact that there's no mention of the Jerusalem council, and the Jerusalem council occurred around 48, 49 A.D. Scholars believe because there's no mention of that Jerusalem council, Galatians was probably written before it. Okay, Because, again, if it had been written after it, you can just reference the Jerusalem council and everything would be good. It would just answer all the questions. The date also hinges on which Jerusalem visit Paul is referring to in Galatians chapter 2. If you still have your Bible open to Galatians, look at chapter 2, where Paul there says, then after 14 years. Now earlier he says, after three years. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and, reminded, and remained with him 15 days. And then chapter 2, verse 1, then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. So this is his second visit to Jerusalem. Now, again, scholars are not sure if the 14 years includes the three years or if it's added to the three years. In other words, is it 14 total or is it 17 years? Okay, we're not sure. And that's, that's you know... Now, I'm saying all this. I'm just laying this out, okay? It, it doesn't really affect the theology of the book, okay? I'm just giving you the options here. So Paul here in chapter 2 says, we went up to Jerusalem, and, you know, he's talking here, and, and it, it kind of sounds almost like maybe he's referencing, you could say he's maybe referencing the Jerusalem council in this passage. So we're not sure what visit he's referencing here in chapter 2. Is this the Jerusalem council of chapter 15, or is it what Paul will mention in Acts chapter 11? In Acts chapter 11, Paul goes to Jerusalem there to deliver some famine relief. In Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 27, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And this they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the question as far as the date is concerned is, is this visit in Galatians 2, that famine relief visit in Acts 11? If it is, then the date is very early. 
The date would be like around 47 to 48 AD that Paul wrote this, and that would make this Paul's first letter that he ever penned. If it's the Jerusalem visit in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, then it'll make the date a little, a little bit later. Okay. Now, I, again, I, I mention all this. It's like this has nothing really to do with the theology of the book. Okay. The theology and the argument in the book remains unchanged based on the date. I'm just giving you this information for what it's worth. Is this possibly could be, and I actually believe it is, Paul's first letter that he wrote. You can make an argument with 1 Thessalonians depending on that date, but it's one of those two. All right, so that's, that's the date, the occasion. Again, Paul here is writing to churches in southern Galatia that are in crisis. These churches are in crisis. Now, Paul evangelized a number of cities. We mentioned them in southern Galatia in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And then shortly after Paul leaves there, they are visited by what Paul will call troublers. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Not that there is another one, another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then later on in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's kind of a very graphic... uh, (laughs) He's like, those who want to force circumcision on you, they should... If you're, if you're going to force circumcision, he's based, Paul's just based, cut it all off. <laughs> but those who unsettle you, those who trouble you, the, the church was infiltrated by troublers. They came in and they started preaching a false gospel that required circumcision. Again, remember, they're saying you cannot be a Christian unless you are first circumcised and then you have to follow Jewish dietary laws. You have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. So what they were doing is they were adding finished, they were adding, sorry, they were adding their own works to the finished work of Christ. They were adding their own works to the finished work of Christ. And as I've, I've said this before, right, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add to Christ, you get nothing. If you don't accept the finished work of Christ, you don't have anything at all. So these troublers were people pleasers. That's why Paul will say in chapter 1, verse 10, Am I now seeking the approval of man? If I'm trying to please man, then I would not be a servant of Christ. So these are people pleasers. These are people seeking converts. To their, to their own program, to their, they're seeking to build a following. And they were, in a way, kind of denigrating the Apostle Paul and denigrating his ministry. All right, so that's the background to Galatia. Now the background to the churches of Galatia. So this region, the region of Galatia, was originally settled by Celtic people, the Gauls from France. Okay, so they spread out all over the place. And they settled sort of in north-central Asia Minor, that northern region. Uh, it eventually, when Rome started to rise in power, uh, the, the, this region of Galatia, settled by the Gauls, uh, became what, we, what they call a client kingdom. So in other words, they were allowed to maintain their king, but they were subservient to the Roman Empire. And then when the king died, 
then Rome just sort of sucked it up and made it a Roman province. They said, okay, you're now under our rulership. We're going to put our governor over you. You are now one of us. So it became a province, a Roman province, somewhere around the mid-first century B.C., so before the birth of Christ. Or do you have to say B.C.E.? See, you know, common era and before common era, or, or the Christian era. You could say the Christian era and before the Christian era. I like that one. So mid-first century B.C. Then when uh, the Galatia became a Roman province, that region then expanded into the south-central parts of Asia Minor. That's why those four cities that Paul evangelized and set up churches in were part of the Galatian province because that, that area expanded down to the south. Now in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and we're going to read portions of it, so you might as well just flip there now. <laughs> um, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, this was Paul's first missionary journey. It took place... Uh, somewhere between the years 46 and 47 A.D., Paul evangelized and established churches in the cities of Antioch of Pisidia, um, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So you see here in chapter 13, verse 1, now there were in the church of Antioch, this is not Antioch and Pisidia, this is Antioch and Syria, Okay, so that's, that, that's where Paul was. That was sort of his base of operations. Uh, there were in that church prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called, I don't know how to say that word without being offensive, Niger. <laughs> uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's our guy, Paul. He was still going by the name Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you got that practice of laying on the hands, and, and they were commissioned for the work. So they go and they sail on to Cyprus, and then they come to, in chapter 13, verse 13, they come to the first city in that southern Galatian region, Antioch of Pisidia. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them. It's John Mark. Okay, we'll talk about him some other time. Uh, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Because verses 16 through 41 is one long sermon Paul preaches there on that Sabbath day. So then, um, moving on to chapter 14. So they leave, well, uh, uh, 13 verse 48. So Paul preaches his sermon. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So... <laughs> Paul is preaching a message of freedom and liberty in the gospel, and the Gentiles are like, this is good news! Wonderful! And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, wah, 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 right? <laughs> the party poopers, the Jews, not all of them, I don't want to be racist or anything. 
But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. You see this all throughout the book of Acts. Paul will go into a city. He'll preach to the Jewish people. Some will accept him. The Gentiles almost overwhelmingly accept him. And then the vast majority of the Jews are like, get this guy out of here. Right? They were the ones that incited all the riots that you see in the book of Acts here. So they went off and they went to Iconium. And that's what you see in chapter 14, verse 1. Then they come to Iconium. And again, they entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews, okay, the party poopers, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly before the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders be done. But the people of the city were divided. And then they go to Lystra, verse 8. Now at Lystra there's a man sitting who could not use his feet, and he was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And then he goes on and preaches there. Now here, this is interesting. And when the crowd saw it, verse 11, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowd. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So you, have a bunch, so you have angry Jews in these cities, but you also have very superstitious Gentiles, right? Paul does a miracle, and the Gentiles there are thinking, these are messengers from the gods, and we need to sacrifice to them. So that's what you have in these cities here, right? I could read on about um, Lystra. That's where Paul gets stoned. <laughs> so not, again, not in the happy 60s way. This is in the very unhappy Jewish way of having rocks thrown at you. Um, these cities, they had Jewish populations and synagogues. All of them had them. Okay, So this, they had a, a very significant Jewish population, at least enough to have a synagogue. And they also had, like I said, some very superstitious Gentiles. So that's the kind of people that you have here. Angry Jewish people and superstitious Gentiles. Okay. Now just some opening thoughts on the book of Galatians as we move on to point C there, or point three, or whatever it is on your outline. It's maybe a little different on mine. Overview of Galatians. The main theme of this book, okay, the main theme of this book is the life and death and resurrection of Christ has ushered in a new era of the new creation. 
This is a new era is dawning, all right? This is not the age of Aquarius. This is the new age, a new era of the new covenant as Christ ushers in this new era by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Believers do not have to become Jews uh, in order to become Christians. The gospel cannot be supplemented by human effort or human obedience. Paul, one of Paul's main points in Galatians is the heart of the gospel is found in justification by faith alone. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. This is, I wouldn't say this is the key verse. This is a key verse. Okay, A key verse. One of the key verses in this book. Chapter 2, verse 16. Where Paul here says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul mentions in there that you are not justified by works of the law three times in one verse. And he says you are justified by faith in Christ only three times in the same verse. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Now my candidate for key verse in this book is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. So if you're taken to underlining or highlighting in your Bible, Galatians 5.1 is a good verse to do. Where Paul here writes, For freedom, I almost hear William Wallace, right? In Braveheart. Freedom! For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom! We are free in Christ. We are free in Christ. We are free from the law. We are free from man-made religion. We are free to obey Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul emphasizes this throughout this letter. Why? Because the people coming into these churches are attempting to put the Christians there under a yoke of slavery. You have to follow Jewish custom. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow dietary laws. You have to do this, this, and this. Then you can be a Christian. Then, then, then. And Paul's like, no. No, no, no. You are free in Christ. You're free from all of that. Not that the Jewish system was wrong. And Paul will talk about that in chapters 3 and 4. The Jewish system was sort of a teacher leading them to Christ. Now that Christ is here, you don't need the teachers anymore. Right? If you're riding a bike and you can't maintain your balance sometimes, what do parents put on your bike, on your back wheels? You put training wheels so you can keep your balance. Once you keep your balance, do you need the training wheels anymore? No, you take them off, right? So that you can, you are now free from the yoke of the training wheels. That's what Paul is saying here. We are free in Christ. You are free from the law, the penalty of the law. The law has no hold over you in the sense of condemning you. 
Because you are free. Christ has paid for your sins. The law has no power over you. You are free from any man-made religion. Anybody who tries to add to the finished work of Christ. You are free from that. So this is going to be a book that's going to sort of have legalism in the background. Okay? The legalist is one who adds to Christ. Adds to the law. Right? It's not enough to do what's in this book. We have to add now the addendum, right? <laughs> we have to add the appendix that has all these extra things in it, other rules that you need in order to just follow these rules here. And we are now free to obey Christ in the power of the Spirit. So Galatians is a declaration of freedom. Some, some authors call it the Magna Carta. <laughs> if you know what the Magna Carta is from 1215, uh, the great uh, document that sort of liberated the English nobles from, from King John in 1215. It's a declaration of freedom from condemnation and from... And it's, it's also a declaration of freedom from a performance mindset. Okay, this idea that I need to do, do, do in order to be uh, approved by God. Galatians says, no, you are set free from that performance mindset. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more because he already loves you perfectly in Christ. Interestingly enough, Galatians, I think, Galatians is sort of like the last straw in the camel's back for Martin Luther. All right, when Martin Luther, who was a German monk, went into the Augustinian order, uh, and he was, he was on fire because he wanted to be holy. He wanted to, he wanted to be free from the condemnation of God, so he felt the only way I can be holy is to join a monastery. So he joins a monastery, and he is the best monk that he can ever be. He puts all the other monks to shame. And he's working, working, working. And all in the background, he, he still feels the weight of God's condemnation. And he looks at verses like Romans 1, where he says, Romans 1.16, where the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And he took that to mean God's righteous anger at his sin. So Paul's like, love God. No, I hate God because he is this condemning fire that stands over me. So his, his mentor sends him to uh, Wittenberg to learn theology. And Luther's like, learn theology? I have a crisis of faith here. I'm losing my faith. You want me to teach theology? And his mentor says, just go and read the Bible, read the scriptures, expose yourself to the Holy Scriptures. Which is odd because the monk, you would think in a monastery they would have that, but they didn't. So he goes and he teaches. And he teaches through the book of Psalms. He lectures through the book of Psalms. And that starts to alter his thinking. Then he, then he lectures through the book of Romans, and that continues to alter his thinking. Then in, from October 1516 through March 1517, Martin Luther lectured through the book of Galatians. Now what else happened in 1517? The hammering of the 95 Theses. Seven months later, Martin Luther is hammering his 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And he wrote this in a commentary to Galatians that he eventually wrote in 1535. So this was in the preface of his commentary. Martin Luther wrote this. We have taken it upon ourselves in the Lord's name to lecture on this epistle of Paul to the Galatians once more. This is not because we want to teach something new or unknown. 
For by the grace of God, Paul is very well known to you. But it is because, as I often warn you, there is a present danger that the devil may take away from us the pure doctrine of faith and may substitute for it the doctrines of works and of human traditions. That was Paul, or sorry, that was Martin Luther in his preface to the, to the commentary in Galatians, and he was right. That is why we constantly hammer the gospel of free grace, because in our hearts, we want to throw works into the mix. The devil wants us to throw works into the mix, thinking you're not good enough, you need to do better. Right? The world looks at this message of free grace and sees it as foolish. So a 30,000-foot view of Galatians. Now, I've looked at a number of commentaries that have outlines over the books, and let me just put it this way. Five or seven or ten different commentaries, guess how many different outlines I had? Five or seven or ten, right? (laughs) Everyone had a different outline. Now, they have the same kind of basic flow. So I'm just going to give you one that I think is fine, it's not my own, uh, but there are, there are five major parts in this book. There are five movements. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, that's the first part, you have Paul's intro, and then you have Paul sort of laying the table for what the rest of the book will be in verses 6 through 9, where he talks about no other gospel. So his, his intro and then his opening rebuke. Then... In chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 2, verse 21, Paul then defends his own work in ministry. He defends his gospel, he defends his ministry. In chapter 3, verse 1, now this is the hard one, and I'm not sure where to break it. You can go to the end of chapter 4. I've seen some go through chapter 5, verse 12. I've seen some go through chapter 5, verse 15. I'll just say chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 12. Paul now is making his appeal to the Galatians, okay? I've introduced the letter. I've laid out the problem. You're teaching a false gospel. I've defended the true gospel. I've defended my ministry. Now I'm going to make exhortations to you. And I'm going to explain to you why I teach what I teach. Chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 10... Sorry, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 12 is Paul's appeal to the Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 13 to chapter 6, verse 10 is Paul's exhortation to the Galatians. So now he says, in light of the gospel, this is how we now need to live. And then the rest of the book, chapter 6, verse 11 to 18 is Paul's final words. So those are the five major movements. So Paul introduces the letter. Paul defends his gospel ministry. Paul then makes an appeal based on the true gospel to the Galatians. Then Paul then begins to exhort them. You could say starting in verse 13. You could say starting in verse 16 where he says, walk by the Spirit. Because of the gospel, walk by the Spirit and you will no longer gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he ends with a a warning and a benediction. Now structurally, Galatians is a typical letter of its time. But for Paul... It is somewhat atypical. We've already gone through Romans, and we've gone through 1 Corinthians, and those introductions are a little lengthier. Paul not only greets them and 
He, in some cases, he has an opening prayer. He has an opening thanksgiving. I thank the Lord for you, that your faith is growing, and so on and so forth. Even the Corinthian church, which was a mess, right? We spent 48 lessons looking at how messy the, the Corinthian church was. Even that, he had a little bit of, you know, I thank the Lord for you, that your faith is, <laughs> that you are a strong, faithful church. Here, Paul's tone is right to, you know, it's like, let's get started. Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to ignore the fluff, and I'm going to get right to the heart of the matter. So he says, you know, grace to you, peace, blah, blah, blah. Now, now, and then he says in verse 6, I am, I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly leaving the gospel. He gets right to business. His tone is harsh. His tone is critical. His tone is filled with urgency. Because the issues here, while Corinthians was a messed up church with a lot of problems... They pale in comparison to tolerating a false gospel. And that's what the Galatians were doing. They were flirting with a false gospel. So where in Corinthians he could say, look, you guys are messed up, but you're still brothers. You're still brothers and sisters in Christ. And just, you know, work on loving one another. Here he's afraid that the Galatians are going to leave the faith. Right? What's worse, a, a messed up Christian or a Christian who abandons the gospel to, to follow a false gospel. Messed up Christians will still get to heaven, right? Christians who abandon the gospel for a false gospel have abandoned the only um, hope for their salvation. And they have given it up for a highway to hell, if you will, to borrow from ACDC. So he gets right to the point. Because the matters here he is addressing are central to the gospel. And then finally, it's a letter of contrasts. You've got Paul in this letter will say, there's, you know, he contrasts the true gospel versus a false gospel. He contrasts faith versus works. He contrasts law versus grace. Liberty versus legalism. Sonship or adoption versus slavery. And then fruit of the Spirit versus works of the flesh. We're gonna, we'll flesh those out as we go through the letter, but those are some of the contrasts Paul addresses in this letter. And then finally, and now a little more quickly, the greeting. We read the first five verses earlier. Now we're going to look at it again just in a little bit of detail before we quit here. So he begins this letter by announcing himself and acknowledging the fact that he is an apostle. Now that's not unusual. Paul often opens his letter, Paul, an apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ. But note what he says there. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. So Paul here is very keen to acknowledge that he's not an apostle of his own choosing. And you know that if you know the life of Paul. He did not choose to become an apostle, right? <laughs> he was chosen to be an apostle. Paul will later on say, I was set apart in my mother's womb for this calling. But he was chosen to be an apostle. He was not an apostle by his own choosing. So, and that's what the Galatians, were, or at least these false teachers were coming in. They were criticizing Paul's ministry. They're saying, this is, Paul, he's not a legitimate apostle. Paul's like, no, I am a legitimate apostle. I was called not from men or through men, but through Christ Jesus. So an apostle is one who is a delegate, a messenger, one who is sent. And here Paul is using it in the technical sense as one of those who are specifically commissioned by Christ himself. And we know that from Acts chapter 9. 
Now, Paul is writing to, as we said earlier, the churches in Galatia. So this is not a single church. So in a way, you could say this is a bit of a circular letter. It's meant to be uh, distributed through all four of those churches that we mentioned earlier. Um, And you have then a typical greeting in verse 3. He opens many of his letters like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could go into that, but, you know, I mean, grace is what God gives. It's unmerited favor that God bestows upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peace is that idea that we are now no longer at war with God because of the work of Christ on our behalf. He has paid for our sins, and he has given us access uh, through his body on the tree. So we are at peace with God. God is at peace with us. That's more importantly is the way you probably should say it. But then in verse 4, Paul can't help again but state the true gospel. So again, you know, taking at it from verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, who, Christ, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So really you've got a, in, in there a, a nutshell of the gospel. Right? Christ wasn't forced to come into this world to offer himself for sin. He gave himself, willingly, freely. Jesus says this in John 10 in that great shepherd discourse. I lay down my life for the sheep. And notice that language there, to deliver, to rescue, to to save us. That's, again, think of the, the theme of Galatians again. Freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and here, Jesus gives us that freedom by delivering us. That, that's, that's redemption language. That's, that's freedom language. We are delivered from slavery to sin. We are delivered from our bondage under the law. And Christ frees us from that. Also from this present evil age. Here, I may have mentioned this before in some earlier context. Paul has what we call a two-age view of the world. We are in the present age, which he describes here as evil, because it is under the power of Satan, it is under the power of the devil, Uh, and then the age to come, which is when Christ returns and sets up the the final iteration of the kingdom. And this is all according to the will of God. This is all according to God's sovereign will and plan for redemption. It's his decree. And then as verse 5 says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of the gospel, we glorify God. That is our response. It is a response of thankful hearts that give praise to God for what he has done. Just one final word here, a little bit of gospel encouragement. It is because of the death of Christ, again by God's grace, that we now have peace with God and are then rescued from this evil age for the new age that has dawned upon us. Again, remember that the basic theme of this book is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has ushered in a new era of the new covenant. So this new age now has dawned upon us. We are living in light of two ages, really. We are living in the already and the not yet. We are already saved and rescued and redeemed by Christ. And then what awaits us is the final consummation of that when Christ returns. And then this evil age will be gone, and then it will be an age of holiness, righteousness, and glory. So I'll stop here because I'm running up on time there. Next week, Lord willing, 
We will look at then that next section there, verses 6 through 9, Paul's rebuke about the Galatians uh, turning away from the true gospel to a false gospel.